Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine, and we are currently hard at work on a new season for you. I'm insanely excited about it. More details coming soon. In the meantime, if you are missing the Double Shift in your life, become a member. Senior producer Rachel McCarthy and I are sharing some unfiltered voice memos back and forth about our experiences as working moms during COVID. To become a member and support a mom-run media company, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. It starts at $5 a month. And while we work on the third season, I have a great new show to share with you here in the feed. It's called Labor, and it's hosted by two awesome journalist moms, Amy Westervelt, who's a friend and advisor to The Double Shift, and Elise Hugh. We hear a lot about moms being miserable these days, but did you know there's a whole field of social science research dedicated to figuring out why and what to do about it? Elise and Amy take an intersectional dive into that research to help us all understand how we got here and how the heck we're going to get out. Their first season is covering some great topics, like how all parents are being left behind in the pandemic, why Japan is the ultimate example of why it's important to change culture alongside policy, and what the fight for climate action tells us about the fight for parenting equality. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your pods. In this episode we're sharing today, Amy and Elise talk to sociologist Julie Kohler, who talks about where the idea that every nuclear family should fend for themselves even came from, and what the pandemic tells us about the need to find a new model. If you like season two of The Double Shift, which was all about rethinking the nuclear family, you will love this episode. I'm totally immersed in this stuff, and I learned a lot and found the dots Julie connects really compelling. You are going to love this show. Let's take a listen. Those of us surviving this pandemic are living through a huge unraveling of society, a dismantling of life and work as we knew it. We are now experiencing a level of discomfort that really had begun long before the current crisis, and it has simply expanded to include more and more families. Changes affect all of us, but because of the expectations of caregiving in America, American families are being pushed beyond their limits. I'm a monster mama now? I'm Elise Hugh, a longtime journalist and mom, and that was my five-year-old calling me a monster. I'm Amy Westervelt, and those were my boys having their hundredth fight of the day. This is Labor, the social science on work, women, and parenthood. That voice you heard up top was Julie Kohler. She's a social scientist and a senior advisor for the Democracy Alliance. We wanted to talk to Julie because she's been doing a lot of great work around how COVID has heightened the problems that have really been going on in American families for quite a while. So we're going to get into that with her in a minute. But first, a little bit about this show. 
The two of us have been friends for a few years now, and we were always wanting to make something like this podcast um, long before this pandemic hit, actually. Amy, do you want to kind of explain our original idea? Yeah, we had this idea because I wrote this book a couple years ago on the expectations placed on mothers in America and where those came from. And in the course of researching that book, I met all these sociologists doing all this really interesting work on American families. And I wondered why we almost never hear from those people, even though we get a whole bunch of essays about how much motherhood in America sucks all the time. (laughs) Right. So it's actually rooted in a lot of social science and a lot of American history. The reason why motherhood as an enterprise is really failing a lot of us and then making us feel miserable goes way back. And yet a lot of the research hasn't been surfaced. And then the COVID. (laughs) And then coronavirus happened, essentially. And suddenly I was kept in homeschool and doing all my other jobs that I do for money, which include radio journalism and hosting a podcast and running a company and trying to write a book, while we were also expected to have our kids around all the time. Yes. Running a podcast company, doing investigative journalism, which is hard when you're homebound. Uh, (laughs) So I I ended up having to shift my whole workday to basically the middle of the night because it's the only time that I can get silence in my house. So I wake up every day at 3 a.m. now and hope that my kids will stay the fuck in bed till 8. But then also, I mean, the children are quite needy. So it's not just being a snack gopher, right? They also, so this home learning is really a bane of my existence, right? Because it takes up all the devices that we have in the house when I have three girls on Zoom at the exact same time. And then they also want you to sit next to them because it's sort of a wash if they are sitting on a screen, but then there's not a parent that's kind of helping get the supplies that they need or making these elaborate crafts Mm -hmm. that they're supposed to make um, while the teacher is teaching it over a screen. So- there's just a yes. lot of different pulls on us at the same time. And it just and and for us, we're considered, you know, part of like middle class American society too. This is just flattening mm-hmm. or a great equalizer for the stresses that are felt at a much deeper and much more profound level for lower income families. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we're able to work from home still and earn an income that way. And now in the midst of this giant trauma. We decided it couldn't be timelier to talk about these things, better understand them, put out this podcast because we couldn't be feeling the squeeze more starkly. And so to kick things off, we reached out to social scientist Julie Kohler. She has recently written a long-form piece in Boston Review. Here's our conversation with Julie. She recorded from D.C. We taped from our respective home offices in California. Julie Kohler, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'll just jump in and ask because obviously this COVID-19 crisis feels totally impossible on so many different levels. But this family crisis that you have written about, you argue that it didn't really have to be this way in America, that this particular crisis of feeling the strain as profoundly as we have in our families, that that's not actually a byproduct of the global health crisis. Can you explain? Yeah, yeah. What I think is happening is that we are now experiencing a level of 
discomfort and seeming impossibility with the situation that really had begun long before the current crisis. And it has simply expanded to include more and more families. Those families, especially middle class, upper middle class families that maybe were getting by sort of at the margins, by our fingertips, have really been thrown into a different milieu kind of post-COVID. So on its own terms, we are living under an economic system that has failed. There's been less growth, less economic security in this country since 1980 than in the 40 years prior. But this economic approach has become really politically sticky. It's kind of existed or endured as a zombie ideology, some have said. And that's because what they've been successful in is expanding this notion of what constitutes private family responsibility and enshrining that as sort of a reasonable bipartisan consensus. So the article was really designed to kind of unpack the family norms that exist at the root of this failed economic approach that's often called neoliberalism. And one is sort of an economic assumption that families will provide for their own with little public support. And nested within that or interrelated with that is a cultural assumption that the two-parent nuclear family is the optimal structure to do so. And I really believe that at this moment, where big changes are possible, what we need to do is not just kind of raise the policy solutions, but explicitly critique and dismantle those norms that lie at the heart of the dominant economic approach. Can you lay out some of those norms that we're talking about? Because the thing about norms is they're normalized. We think that they're normal and that that's the way things are supposed to be. So what are the expectations of this private family unit that you talk about that maybe shouldn't be expectations on us? Right. Well, I think what's kind of so ironic is, you know, there's been this kind of idealized family type, right? A kind of a two-parent traditional nuclear family still is kind of promoted as the best way of doing family, even though many families no longer fit that structure in any way. But that itself was a social creation of a very specific time in history. It was really kind of the mid-20th century post-war era, and it was enabled by massive government spending. So it was only enabled, though, for a certain group of families, largely white families especially. And with husbands who had unionized jobs. So those benefits, massive investment in housing, massive investment in higher education for white men who were returning from the war and could benefit from the GI Bill, all of these public supports enabled this kind of family ideal. Now, in the 40 to 50 years kind of since that, it's beginning really in the 1980s, we've dismantled all of those forms of public supports that made that kind of family possible. And yet we still have the expectation that families are going to be providing for their own. So it's this kind of catch-22 for families. They're kind of forced to believe that it's their responsibility to provide for everything for their kids that can assure a middle-class life or economic security in the future. Families have to pay for childcare, to all the kind of enrichment activities that you know accompany middle-class life these days, to higher education, which is increasingly 
traditionally financed by families or through massive debt that families have to incur, either you know college students or their families on their behalf. So the economic burden for families has increased exponentially over the last 40 to 50 years. And yet we remain locked in this family ideal, this notion of what families should look like that simply is not possible with kind of the economic burdens that we now have. I'm curious, besides, you know, us feeling stressed and broke and people having, you know, (laughs) less and less money, like what's sort of the result for society of that? Yeah, well, here's what I think is kind of interesting. So this economic approach was facilitated by two parts. A partnership, you could say, between neoliberal economists, so these, you know, kind of economists who had a specific idea about what would lead to economic prosperity, and social conservatives, especially evangelical Christian social conservatives. And the case that evangelical Christian social conservatives made about kind of the innate superiority of the two-parent nuclear family, like, that has not actually won out in the court of public opinion in this country. Like, People today are far more accepting of a wide variety of family forms than they were a generation ago. So we're at a very different place in kind of what we think can constitute a good family. And yet at the same time, because of all of these policies, because of these economic shifts, individuals are more tethered to families through wealth and debt than they were a generation ago. So it's almost as though the economics has done the bidding of social conservatives for them. They haven't (laughs) been able to succeed in winning on the ideological war, but they've won it on the economic side. I just want to back up real quick, Julie, for those who aren't steeped in these sorts of conversations all the time. Can you just do your quick elevator definition of neoliberalism and how neoliberalism views families? Yeah, sure. So neoliberalism is kind of a murky concept. I mean, it's kind of how we talk about a lot of things these days, but it's basically an economic approach that has dominated over the last half century in American life and has been characterized by a few things, privatization, deregulation, tax cuts. So it's kind of an economic approach that has tended to value free markets as the best way of achieving economic prosperity. And the individual, right? It values the individual, sort of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Exactly. And what I argue in this piece, though, is that it talks about individuals, but essentially what has been achieved over the last 40 years or so has been really the establishment of the family as the basic economic unit of society. Okay, so we know what the current responsibilities of private families are, but in your opinion, what should they be? And have you seen these kinds of responsibilities and such break down differently in other cultures, other societies? Yeah, well, I think what we're seeing right now is the vast failure of this approach. (laughs) And let's be clear, low-income families have been experiencing this for a very, very long time. And what I think the COVID crisis has done has been a tipping point for middle-class and upper-middle-class families. And it's been that tipping point really for two reasons. One is that one of the few remaining public benefits that we have in our society for children is K-12 education. And with school closures, middle and upper middle class families are not accessing school, right? So we're denied that one kind of remaining public benefit. And the other is that, you know, basically our care system is one that 
upper middle class and middle class families have been able to get by based on the underpaid labor of mostly black and Latinx women, disproportionately women of color, who are providing all of those caregiving services and providing a lot of that domestic or household labor. So the COVID crisis has disrupted both. So I do think that there are new political possibilities because we are really seeing that kind of all of these beliefs that have been promoted, that it's just about good family decision-making. Like if you make good, responsible decisions, you'll be fine. Well, well, we've always known that it hasn't that hasn't been the case, and now many people that may have bought into that ideology are experiencing it pretty directly firsthand. That kind of leads right into another question that we wanted to ask you about how this structure solidifies and maintains white supremacy. You talked about this a bit in your piece too, and I'm hoping you can explain that a bit more. There has always been sort of a policing of family structure that has happened, especially with black families, that just has not for white families in this country. And one of the best examples of that is the policy debate over welfare reform that really dominated at the federal level in the 1990s and extended into the early 2000s. And that was really the culmination of more than 30 years of moralizing about quote unquote family breakdown in black communities and really stigmatizing black single mothers. I mean, you remember the trope about kind of welfare queens and the notion that black unmarried women were kind of exploiting the system in order to get rich by collecting welfare benefits. So by, by dramatically eroding support for the most vulnerable families, the most vulnerable mothers and their children, the net effect of that was really to transform how we viewed our public interest in this country. When the face of poor women, poor mothers with children was white widows with children, then we had social programs that were designed to provide Support for them. We're designed to help vulnerable families. And as soon as kind of the cultural image of what single motherhood looked like was Black unmarried mothers, we transformed our social programs into one that was about enforcing family responsibility. Julie, I'd love for you to read another key paragraph from your piece so that we can better understand what is so broken. These numbers really jumped out at us. Over the past half century, much about families has changed. Today, 26% of children live with a single parent, and 61% of married parents with children under the age of 18 both work outside the home. Yet there has been no commensurate reduction in caregiving and household labor, and few new public supports to help families manage responsibilities that were once relegated to full-time homemakers. Nor is there any formal support in the form of tax, monetary, housing, or other policy for the kinds of family structures that would be better equipped to manage the responsibilities of a neoliberal economy, such as extended families. That's wild. So I just want to underline that for y'all one more time. 61% of married parents with children under the age of 18 both work outside the home these days. But we're still living, Julie, as you're saying, in this 1950s ideal of a nuclear family unit in which Betty Draper is at home vacuuming and preparing casseroles and able to pick up her kids at three o'clock after school. Exactly, exactly. And so everything is structured around that kind of assumption. And the only way that ideal was able to exist 
is because public supports existed that no longer do. Will you explain a little bit like what that support looked like for sort of the average family? Yeah, well, for one thing, greater numbers of white men were unionized. So they had good paying jobs and you could afford to support a family on one wage. That no longer is true. So wages have been dramatically depressed, especially, of course, for those at the lowest end of the income ladder. And so now it's economically almost impossible for many to survive on one income. And then you also kind of in this post-war era had many GIs returning from the war that were eligible for vast benefits to access a higher education. So, you know, we had a whole generation of men that went to college on the GI Bill. And now not only are most people not receiving higher education benefits through military service. But we've also shifted how higher education is paid for. So there used to be much more by way of Pell Grants, many more forms of government financing to support people accessing a higher education. And that has been shifted increasingly to private financing. So people have to go into massive amounts of debt. So All of these benefits that created a thriving middle class, that's public money. Pell Grants are public money. And so the eradication of that, the shifting of all of this into private markets puts more financial burdens on families. Similarly, there were just housing benefits that didn't exist today. And so being able to buy into a house in the suburbs that was possible for, again, a lot of these returning veterans, we don't have that today. And so to be able able to to buy into housing markets it's only for kind of those at the top of the of the socioeconomic spectrum and often financed through intergenerational wealth right like it's a lot of right. older parents financing the down payments for their children's first homes so again it sort of tethers people to families through their reliance both on wealth and on debt We haven't even gotten into the K through 12 public education piece, which is what's stressing so many of (laughs) us out right now um, as parents of small children. Public schools are part of this picture, especially as we fret about them not opening in the fall. Right. Right. So how is the insistence on maintaining this old school family structure we're talking about tied into public schools and public school funding today? Right. Well, I mean, public schools have been the one sort of remaining (laughs) public benefit that the vast majority of American families are able to access, but they've always been inadequately and inequitably funded. The financing mechanism for public schools to be linked to property taxes creates tremendous disparities. So, you know, I mean, in one way, the public health issues here are kind of interrupting any family being able to access that benefit right now. And so, you know, schools are sort of being forced to make impossible decisions on how to reopen, how to reopen safely and how to maintain kind of, you know, all the the protections for their staff and their teachers and students and everything. But they will need more resources. If we really want public schools to be reopening, they are going to need so many more additional resources in order to be able to serve students and be able to protect their staff in a way that, you know, adheres to public health guidance. Is there anywhere in this crisis that you see an opportunity either for policy change or culture change or some kind of combination thereof that could address some of these longer standing issues? 
Yeah, I think we're at actually a huge moment of opportunity. So even though it feels completely overwhelming and, you know, I'm a mom of a young child too. And so believe me, I've had days where it's just, you know, you feel really overwhelmed and bleak about the future. But I do believe that we're at sort of a political tipping point. And I do believe that the economic hardship is so widespread that we have an opportunity to really demand fundamentally different solutions and that the public will that has just not been there yet on, you know, kind of things like universal childcare, on public higher education, all of these things that have been sort of growing momentum has been happening. It's not like these were not in the political ether, but we haven't had the political will to overcome staunch conservative opposition to any new public investments. And I believe that we could be at a moment where that could change. Yeah, this reminds me of something that really stood out to me in Amy's book, actually, where she writes, we've actually had publicly funded daycare across this country for a long time, and it's always been in existence and super affordable, just only for the military. So only on (laughs) military bases. Exactly. And it's considered the best system in the country. I mean, it's routinely heralded as like, where where can we look for like, you know, really good examples of high quality child care? We, we know where it is. And so we absolutely could provide that at scale if we had the political will to make that happen. Okay, so it seems like maybe now that this has hit middle and upper class families, too, that there might be maybe more political will behind making some of these changes. Do you think that that part of the reason that we haven't seen these shifts is because all of these issues are kind of always seen as mom issues? So like not even parent issues or women's issues, but specifically just like this one subgroup of of moms. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'd say moms and then also women, because I think it's it, things tend to be devalued when they affect women writ large. And then I think it's particularly true for women with children, women who are mothering. Um, and, you know, I even think about this, you know, I've been studying a lot of these issues for 30 years, you know, as a social scientist. And we've long been invested in and interested in issues around universal child care and the value of early care and education and, and looked to Scandinavian countries and, you know, known that there have been models internationally for a long time to be able to provide this. But for some reason, it was not viewed as an economic issue until recently. And so Suddenly, the economics profession has come around to the fact that these are economic issues. They aren't sort of these soft social policy issues that women care about. But these are actually core issues to how we build a functioning economy. And I think it's a positive development, but I think there's also a hefty dose of misogyny that's been behind the exclusion of these issues from sort of mainstream economics for way too long. Okay, so so if people are hearing this episode and nodding along or getting outraged, what should we do? What would these fundamentally different solutions that you talk about, what would they look like? Well, I think we have to build a system that has universal childcare. I mean, that is first and foremost. Public schools are in a tough position right now, no doubt. 
but they will come back, right? Like we will have public schools on the other side of this COVID crisis. But the childcare system we have right now, because it's this private marketplace, is literally on the brink of collapse. And so we are just about to face a huge crisis, right? As more and more parents are ordered to go back to work and there is no available childcare and childcare businesses have gone under because they haven't been able to, you know, survive the, the lockdowns and they're going to have to reopen with fewer children to maintain appropriate social distancing guidelines and their profit margins are going to then be affected and they're not going to be able to pay for all their staff. I mean, like you can see, this is a spiraling crisis. So we need to one, I mean, invest. There's a you know bill right now that we to do fifty billion dollars in bailout money for the childcare system. Absolutely, that has to happen. But that is really the bare minimum. It has to be transitioned to a public system so that we can there can be care provided to all families at all times. And I think what's also important in that is that we need to center this conversation around those who are most vulnerable. Like we have to have childcare solutions in this country that are affecting single parents who are working non-typical work hours, not just sort of you know, upper middle class families that need some childcare assistance around the edges. Like we really need to make sure that our public system is designed to serve everyone. Julie, this was such a rich conversation. Thank you so much for your work on this topic, but also for sharing your insights with us. Yeah. Thanks, Julie. It was so interesting to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. And where can folks find you online or if they want to reach out to you? At Twitter at Julie K. Kohler One. That was wild. I mean, a lot of these things, obviously, we're sort of steeped in these issues, but it we you know I think we really take for granted how nice, you know, middle class and upper class families have had it until COVID when lower income (laughs) families have been dealing with this crisis of lack of care and lack of affordable care for this entire time. (laughs) Right. So that really jumped out at me. Yeah. You know, actually what struck me was the point she made about how this like 1950s American family life was totally enabled by public spending. I was like, yeah, why do we never talk about that? All those things are gone. Yeah. But she was so good. I hope that those of y'all who heard this conversation have a lot of great nuggets to now go forth in the world and get outraged about and talk about with your friends and families. And that's it for this time. So let us know what you think about this twin bind of cultural norms and economic norms that are making family life so awful in America. My name is Elise Hugh. I'm Amy Westervelt. We're making labor because we think these conversations are crucial. It's a co-production of my company, Critical Frequency. And my company, Reasonable Volume. This episode is produced and edited by my partner in crime, Rachel Swaby. And mixed and mastered at the 805 Room in Santa Barbara. Big thanks to Julie Kohler for her insights. And if you're liking this kind of stuff, please subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends to subscribe. And of course, we want to hear your takes and your ideas. So email team at reasonablevolume.com or tweet at us. I'm at Elise W-H-O. That's E-L-I-S-E-W-H-O. And Amy? I'm at Amy Westervelt. I'm not going to spell it. It's way too long. It's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you guys next time.
Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen and subscribe to Labor wherever you get your podcasts.